This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carden. Hi, everybody. Nate Carden here once again with David Farhat, Stefan Victor, Iman Kyler. This is Guilty Conscience. Today, we're going to revisit Pillar 2. We're joined by Vikram Shand, professor at the University of Lausanne. Vikram, welcome to the show. What's going on with Pillar 2? What are the latest updates? Thanks, Nate, for this question. A lot of updates on the Pillar 2 side. To put it across uh, very simply, many, many countries are signing up to the Pillar 2 initiative. If you take the common law space, you have uh, UK, which has already released the draft legislation. And in addition to UK, you have Canada, New Zealand, um, as well as Australia, who have already launched draft consultations. Within the European Union, the European Directive has already been passed on Pillar 2, so we could expect uh, Pillar 2 to come in, um, in actually into the legislation of a lot of European member states in 2024, maximum by 2025. In Asia, a lot of countries are signing up again to the Pillar 2 initiative. Uh, for example, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, uh, most likely Indonesia, maybe in the future India too. And within the African Union, the African Tax Administration has already released a draft legislation for qualified domestic minimum top-up taxes, which is an in integral part of the Pillar 2 system, not on the income inclusion rule, not on the UTPR, but on qualified domestic minimum top-up taxes. So that's just a, a global update. But in addition to all these countries, historically all the low-tax countries like um, Switzerland or Hong Kong, or even Jersey, they have announced adoption of the Pillar 2 initiative. So Vikram, what happened? Um, last I remember, folks were kind of pessimistic as to if this would take a hold or move forward. What happened to have this turn where now it seems to be a universal acceptance of this outside of the U.S.? Well, actually, the, I think uh, a lot of countries were interested in adopting this leg Pillar 2 legislation already. But what really triggered so many countries to move ahead right now is basically the the European directive. So um, since the since all the European member states uh, agreed to this directive and now the directive is coming out, we see that around 27, 28 European member states will be introducing these rules. So all the rest of the world outside the U.S. is actually going to follow. Why is Europe so hot on this? What's the overall dynamic? Well, actually, if you look into the countries which are actually pushing for a minimum tax rules, apart from the U.S., uh, uh, which already had the U.S. guilty, it was actually Germany and France and some other developed countries within the European region, too, or the big countries, as I like to call them. Uh, they were pushing for this initiative. And, well, uh, it's a success now that these countries got what they wanted. But what was the primary concern that they had in the first place? Things seem to be going reasonably well, at least uh, as I see it for a lot of these countries. They were economically successful. What's the problem that they're ultimately trying to solve? And does Pillar 2 really solve it? Well, actually, the problem that they were trying to solve was um, initially to combat remaining BEPS issues, 
whatever that meant. Nobody knows what the remaining BEPS issues were. But the way the project has progressed and developed, it's quite obvious. It acts as a tool to restrict tax competition among member countries. But does it achieve this objective of restricting tax competition? Or let's say it's not, uh, it's restricting tax competition by creating a floor up to 15%. But is this project actually achieving that? Well, on one hand, on the face of it, you can just say, yes, it's achieving a minimum floor of 15%. But on the other hand, there are some provisions within the Pillar 2 model rules which still permit countries to continue with tax incentives. And they are basically known as qualified refundable tax credits. So right now, uh, there's a big debate outside the US, I guess within the US also, is how can you reshape your existing tax incentives or how could you come up with new tax incentives and you make them compatible with something known as the qualified refundable tax credit system in the Pillar 2 rules so that you can still continue offering tax incentives to large multinational taxpayers as well as small and medium enterprises. So on the one hand, on the face of it, it looks like the project will achieve its goal. But when you take a deep dive into the rules, you see that you can still achieve a very low tax rate as long as you have compatible in, um, you know, the, the incentives that are being offered by governments are compatible with the Pillar 2 framework. So is it fair to say then that Pillar 2 is not really about getting rid of tax competition generally, it's just reshaping tax competition to the playing field that certain countries like, where they can pick winners and losers? For me, the answer is yes. <laughs> so what Pillar 2 is doing is shifting the tax competition landscape. Yeah, You don't compete on the rates anymore, you compete on the kind of incentives which uh, countries can actually design. And once again, as long as they are qualified in nature. Now, the question is, who is going to certify whether these incentives are qualified or non-qualified? But once again, it has to be um, certified by the OECD's inclusive framework through the SPEAR review mechanism, which has been taking place uh, since a long period of time, whether it's in the BEPS Action 5, which dealt with harmful tax regimes, BEPS Action 6, which dealt with treaty abuse. Uh, there were several peer re review mechanisms that the OECD came up with. So all this qualified nature of these rules will also be discussed in this uh, through this peer review mechanism. So a lot of power will also be shifted back to the OECD's inclusive framework to decide whether or not a country has an appropriate tax incentive regime or not. We talked about problems that Pillar 2 uh, is, is designed to fix. And we're kind of talking about, does it fix those problems or does it do something completely different? And you mentioned um, kind of these lingering issues that BEPS 1.0 didn't address. Do you think the, the tax community or the international community as a whole gave BEPS 1.0 enough time to work, gave folks enough time to kind of work through those, those principles to see if they really worked? Uh, or do you think there may have been just a rush to uh, to BAPS 2.0? Well, honestly, uh, uh, countering tax competition wasn't even on the BEPS agenda. Um, because if you look into BEPS Section 5, which basically is, uh, introduced a substantial activity requirement, there was a clear statement in this Action 5 report, which basically said that, well, uh, you know, the objective of BEPS Action 5 is, is not to dictate a country what the tax rate should be. It's just to ensure that countries have the appropriate substance or they have regimes which, with, the, which, with the appropriate substance. So 
there was never this motive to restrict tax competition. And actually, the only pending BEPS issue was on BEPS Action 1, the Pillar 1 project, which apparently is not going anywhere at this stage because a lot of academics, uh, you know, I, I'm still I'm still fascinated by the Pillar 1 project of the OECD, I have to confess, this amount A system. But a lot of academics uh, in the European region, they've already said, they've declared this project to be dead. But the discussions keep um, progressing at the level of the OECD and recently, some new estimates were released by the OECD saying that Pillar 1 is actually going to reallocate much more than that was uh, initially imagined, almost double. You're talking about 200 billion US dollars or something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, so um, that was the remaining BEPS issue, which was on reallocation of tax and rights. But we don't know whether that project is going to be successful or not at the end of the day. Vikram, back to your point about the certification process and the review panel for credits and other Pillar 2 implementation rules. Tell people who may not be as familiar with the way European domestic regimes work, how does that overlap with European domestic law? So if I'm a, a company in Europe and I think the inclusive framework has made a mistake, I think that the credits that I'm getting should be treated as qualified. Who do I complain to? Let's just take a few steps back here. Now, when you're talking about uh, tax incentives, now tax incentives can be actually income-based incentives or expenditure-based incentives. But now income-based incentives, incentives which you basically see in developing countries. So just to give you a few examples, Indonesia, India, a lot of African countries, they just have income-based incentives, which basically says that, well, if you have a profit, we will just exempt you from taxation, or your tax rate is not going to be the full full rate, it's just going to be half, uh, uh, you just pay taxes on half the amount. So that's very simple and easy to administer when you talk about income-based incentives. On the other hand, the developed countries uh, in the world, including the US, which I assume, have expenditure-based incentives, uh, typically in the form of tax credits. What, what are tax credits? Just for uh, people outside the U.S. to know, is that basically you can use these credits um, to set it off against your normal corporate income tax payable, or it can be used for payment of any other taxes. So many uh, countries currently, like the UK and France, they have expenditure-based incentives or are linked to R&D expenses. What does that basically mean? That means that if the taxpayer, a company, a French company or a UK company, they have, let's say, 100 of expenses on research and development, then a certain percentage of that, let's say 10%, was the tax credit that the taxpayer is entitled to. So 10 would be the credit. And then assuming at the end of the day, you have a corporate income tax liability of 15, you can use that 10 to set it off against your corporate income tax liability. The issue with um, R&D tax credits is that they are quite difficult to administer because you really need to develop a big list uh, of uh, to understand uh, what kind of expenses uh, are eligible R&D expenses. And uh, these incentives from the government side too, they take a lot of time to administer. So basically now, when the countries start offering all these incentives, there's going to be a body who has to certify whether or, the, whether or not these credits are qualified in nature, and that's the OECD's inclusive framework. So de facto, you give substantial power back to the OECD's inclusive framework to decide whether a country has a good incentive or a bad incentive or not. 
And as you all know that the biggest funders of the OECD, um, including the US, are, are the developed countries. So they will start dictating um, tax policy or tax incentives, which other countries will need to adopt. Is that typically allowed under European domestic law? Because in the United States, for example, there would be serious constitutional issues if the Congress said, hey, we're going to allow these unelected people at the OECD to issue binding rules that taxpayers couldn't challenge. Well, actually, in e within the EU context, um, uh, European law takes precedence over the national law of different member states. So European law ranks at a higher pedestal than national law. And here, the European legislators, the EU Commission, have passed a directive, and the directive is actually binding on all member states. So all the member states will need to comply with what's written in the directive. And the directive basically is a cop is I would say 80% is or 85% of the directive is a copy paste of the OECD model rules. So essentially all European member states are bound by the directive right now. But what about the inclusive framework determinations, right? In other words, has the directive also delegated to the inclusive framework? will follow you no matter what you do? And is that permitted under European law? Well, that's a big debate right now in, uh, within the European Union, uh, is what is the legal status, not only of uh, what you just mentioned, but also the legal status of the OECD's commentary on the Pillar 2 rules. What is the legal status of that? If you look into the directive, the European directive, the European directive says that all the outcomes of or the rules of uh, which have been outlined or written in the directive they need to be interpreted in light of uh, the OECD commentary. So there are some references to the OECD commentary in the directive itself. So the directive uh, somehow uh, gives a lot of power to the OECD commentary on the Pillar 2 rules. But when it comes to determinations uh, of whether a rule is a qualified rule or not, um, whether it's a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax or it's a qualified uh, refundable tax credit, so on and so forth, you know, it looks like the directive has given the powers to the OECD's inclusive framework, but to what extent that it can be done with the European law framework, it's still, it's still, uh, there's still an ongoing debate on this topic. And will this get litigated in European courts? Should we stay tuned? Or how does this work out? Well, that's also a big question right now, because the questions are, the que one, one question that was raised in a discussion recently in um, another panel I was a part of, was uh, basically to what extent can uh, taxpayers challenge uh, the directive provisions before the European Court of Justice? Because, because you see the directive, sometimes the directive says one thing, but you know the way the directive has been transposed into the member states' national law, could be, there could be slight differences or variations. And then the, the question then becomes, can the taxpayer basically tell the national member state that, well, you know, the rules you didn't really apply were in conformity with the directive. So basically, then they start challenging the national law rules before courts. It's well possible. Yeah, it could well be possible that they do that. Because yeah, the, if you look into the recent administrative guidance that was re released by the OECD, a lot of discretion is given to member states, or let's say to the OECD's inclusive framework when it comes to implementing these qualified domestic minimum top-up taxes. A lot of discretion has been given. So if, if, if I'm listening to you, it sounds like not much is going to change. It's just going to get more complex. 
It's going to get super complex, yeah, because the way you have to calculate this 15% effective tax rate is uh, is quite complex. And um, well, the, like I mentioned to you, you have one one stream of the IIR and UTPR stream, and the other stream is QDMTT. There are a lot of similarities between the between both these streams of rules, uh, but at the same time, now re after reading the administrative guidance, you can see there are so many differences. And one classic example there is of um, allocation of CFC taxes. Not talking about the U.S. guilty for a minute, uh, but if you see for IIR and UTPR purposes, there was an agreement among countries that whenever a state of residence applied its CFC rule and collected taxes for its CFC through the CFC rule in its home state, these CFC taxes paid in the home state, they had to be pushed down for the ETR calculations of the sub. One question that I struggle with is in the design of the rules and curious as to your perspective on QDMTT design, why doesn't QDMTT just turn off IIR and UTPR? As I read the rules, it's not designed to operate that way. Why not? Well, actually, right now, there's a big debate uh, within the inclusive framework of something, of, um, uh, something known as a QDMTT safe harbor. So basically, if you just uh, recently, the OECD released a report on safe harbors where they spoke about temporary safe harbors and permanent safe harbors. But in the future, there's also they are contemplating on introducing something known as a QDMTT safe harbor. If my understanding is correct of what they mean by a QDMTT safe harbor is just that uh, if you have, let's say, a German parent with a sub in Singapore and the Singapore sub is uh, basically exposed to QDMTT or Singapore has an appropriate QDM QDMTT in place, then basically uh, the German parent will ha not have to do any IIR calculations for this uh, sub in Singapore. The, the top of tax will be deemed to be zero when for the purposes of the income inclusion rule. So that probably that will come out, uh, that's something that may come out in the near future, QDMTT safe harbor. So that's the thing, you know, if until the German government decides that Singapore's domestic minimum top up tax isn't qualified and then they assert <laughs> that the German company owes additional tax. Yes. So that that's the problem. You know, once again, what is the legal nature of all these qualifications? Because if the qualifications may some some qualifications could be done by the OECD's inclusive framework on whether a country has a qualified rule or not. But is that really binding on the local tax administration, the German tax administration in our simple example here? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think so, actually. It, uh, how can something which is being decided in Paris be binding in Germany? Uh, definitely not in the, in, in the court system. What's the impact of all of this to the, the current treaty system and treaty networks? Well, uh, there's a big debate right now, uh, which probably you all have heard, is whether the Pillar 2 rules breach tax treaties. And now when I talk about the Pillar 2 rules, I'm just here talking about the income inclusion rule and the uh, under-tax profit rule. I think a lot of governments, um, they are of the opinion that the income inclusion rule does not really conflict with tax treaties uh, because it's just like a super CFC rule. But at the same time, we, uh, actually, I wrote a very big paper with a couple of co-authors where we said that probably the income inclusion rule can also conflict with tax treaties. Uh, I don't know how successful that would be, but yeah, we've written a big paper on that. But clearly, when you talk about the under-tax profit rule, that's extraterritorial taxation for me. For me, it's just obvious this conflicts with tax treaties. 
I know there's a few legal scholars. There was a recent paper I read of an American scholar who said this is like an excise tax. It's outside the scope of tax treaties. That's that's not true. It's just not true. It's an income tax. It's a tax on corporate profits. Um, it's just a book, uh, book minimum tax. It's a substantially similar tax for the purposes of tax treaties. So if it's covered by tax treaties, then um, I'm pretty sure that once countries start enacting the UTPRs or they just want to enforce the UTPRs, a bunch of taxpayers are just going to go to court and say this is extraterritorial taxation and this needs to be and treaties basically prohibit such extraterritorial taxation. It looks like just from our discussion so far, there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered. But for in-house lawyers listening and just multinationals generally, what should they be doing right now? Should they try to assess their, their compliance for the future? Should they try to determine if they're in scope now or if they'll be in scope in the future? Or should they just wait and see until all of this is sorted out to start planning? Well, actually, to be honest, I think all your clients or multinationals in general, they, they, it's not only multinationals here, but what we're talking about, just to let you know, even if you're, you're talking about private-owned businesses, uh, which have more than 750 million of turnovers. So recently, a uh, structure was shown to me through foundations, and the question was whether this structure, which was run through a foundation or trust, was caught by the pillar to rules, and the answer was yes, it was caught by the pillar to rules. So essentially, it's not only for multinationals, it's also for, for large privately owned businesses who, of course, they need to start doing the assessment because these rules are going to come in. Um, like it or not, these rules are coming and the European Union has passed a directive. More and more countries are adopting these rules in 2024 and they will already be enforced in a lot of countries. So I know that some countries are pushing, uh, well, they've argued that the effective date should be pushed to maybe to 2024, 2025. Is that likely or uh, do you think that this is going to be happening in the near future? Well, for the income inclusion rule, it seems less likely because more a lot of countries will introduce it from uh, 2024 onwards. More likely for the UTPR. Probably what we will see, anyhow, the rules were supposed to come in from 2025, but now after seeing this letter from the U.S. Uh, Republican Committee, uh, it's a question mark. I don't know how many countries will seriously in, in, uh, introduce UTPR in the national law um, because that also means uh, somehow taxing the U.S. companies um, based on the Pillar 2 calculations, assuming the U.S. entities are undertaxed in nature below the 15% rate, uh, according to the Pillar 2 calculations. But I don't know in reality how many countries would want to tax U.S. companies through the UTPR. Uh, I don't know how many countries would like to risk a trade war with the U.S. Um, so uh, I, for the UTPR, it's, it's still difficult to tell when they will be when it will be introduced but within the eu directive they've committed for first of um, for 2025 so let's time will tell so you know i cannot give you a precise answer to this question to be honest so vikram another high level question um we're talking about potential trade wars we're talking about complexity we're talking about rules that you know are kind of put out by the court or are able to handle the court who benefits from all of this I think a lot of governments are just are going to collect money on this um, project, but at the same time, what are they going to do with the money? They will just give it back to the taxpayers, or they will, <laughs> in one way or another, uh, at least the countries which were friendly towards the taxpayers. 
probably countries which were not in which you see that uh, you know the relationship between taxpayers uh, the chinese wall between or let's say let me not call it a chinese wall there's a wall between taxpayers and tax administrations uh, probably in those countries uh, the tax administrations will be happy to get uh, some extra revenues but in a lot of tax friendly jurisdictions um, uh, countries you would see you know governments coming up with schemes trying to give it back to the taxpayers in one way or the other so this this becomes a bit circular in nature in my humble view so again to go back to the the, the treaty discussion and an issue that's always near and dear to my heart kind of competent authority and dispute resolution what does that do for the current framework? I know there's some kind of discussions about what could potentially come into, but how does this impact the current competent authority framework? If we've had some discussions that, hey, this may, this may violate a treaty or that we think this definitely violates treaty, how does that framework come into play here with Pillar 2? Is this something you think they just won't touch or is it going to be kind of on the table of competent authorities to have these discussions around some of these rules? Well, actually, when you think about Pillar 2 rules, well, Pillar 2 rules, they are domestic law rules. Now, domestic law rules, which will be implemented in domestic tax law. Of course, at the same time, countries have tax treaties with each other. The question is, can any Pillar 2 issues be resolved within the exist with the existing tax treaties? But if you look into mutual agreement procedure article, it says Article 25.1 of the OECD model of the U.S. Uh, practice, uh, U.S. treaty networks, you would say that well, 25.1 only resolves treaty-related issues. So when you have a you know, withholding tax issue, where domestic withholding tax is 35, the treaty says 10%, or whether there's an interpretation issue with respect to the LOB clause or the saving clause or the permanent establishment definition, all these issues are transferizing. All these issues are caught within the scope of the tax treaties. But this pillar two stuff are domestic law issues. So if one country disagrees with the top of tax calculations made by another country, I don't think this can be solved under Article 25, uh, which deals with the mutual agreement procedures. Is it 25 in the U.S. model also? Yep, 25. Uh, okay, yeah. So it cannot be solved because these are not treaty-related issues. These are all domestic law issues. You know, all these pillar two issues on top of tax calculations, they're outside the treaty network. So what is being proposed right now um, by the OECD, in, uh, they released a tax certainty document. And in the tax certainty document, uh, they spoke about dispute prevention for GLOBE rules and dispute resolution for GLOBE rules. On the dispute prevention side, they reinforced an, the ICAP project. Or the U.S. is a part of this ICAP uh, project. And um, essentially, they basically said, well, two kinds of ICAPs can be designed. One is... You know, you can integrate the GLOBE rules in the existing ICAP um, uh, process or whether you come up with an independent GLOBE Pillar 2 ICAP process for dispute prevention. Well, that would be a welcome development. But the practical reality is that developing countries are not really a part of this ICAP project. So you just have a bunch of uh, developed countries and the U.S. Uh, as well as uh, some or some other uh, let's say it's the developed countries uh, who are mostly who mostly participate in this ICAP. Developing countries, at least some, or to be honest, some tax administrations I spoke to about ICAP, they don't even know what ICAP is, so they don't even know what that is. So on the dispute prevention side, sticking that to the rest of the world would, I think, it would be challenging. But at the same time, you can develop some nice ideas uh, you can leverage on the existing ICAP mechanism and develop um, 
a certain model for dispute prevention, which is welcome for taxpayers. Anything at this stage is welcome for the taxpayers because yeah. this is just going to become, uh, um, this is going to be so. There's going to be so many problems with these rules, so much litigation around these rules. Somehow it seems to be undermined at this stage. But is, when I read the rules, and you know, when I'm teaching these rules to taxpayers, tax administrations, or even my students, they themselves say this is like the crazy amount of disputes can arise uh, under these rules. So that was on the dispute prevention side. Then on the dispute resolution side, well, there are two options that are being contemplated uh, more seriously. One is the one is to open up a multilateral convention because the nature of disputes here could be bilateral or multilateral in nature, or a pure domestic dispute resolution mechanism. Um, well, both options are uh, being currently discussed at the level of the OECD, but the recent uh, document that was released for uh, in uh, in the public the recent documents which were released in the public comments indicate that. Uh, the most favored route is the multilateral convention by by taxpayers and by large associations. They favor this route. But if this route is not possible because many countries may not sign up to a multilateral convention, then probably they'll have to go for the domestic dispute resolution mechanism, which could actually also be fine for the taxpayers. You know, they get something. Maybe it's not the most, it's not the best thing, but something is better than nothing at this stage. Going back to the Article 25 discussion, I know, I think you're right on Article on 25.1, and then 25.3, it's it's typically reserved to, to, to the competent authorities. What about 25.2 in taxation not in accordance with the treaty? Could someone try to squeeze this in there, or is that still? Yeah, so 25.1 and 25.2, they go hand in hand, and basically they talk about uh, you know this becoming a treaty interpretation issue. So in a paper that we had written a long time ago, we basically said that all treaty conflicts, like, like for example, compatibility of uh, UTPR with tax treaties, that can really be challenged under Article 25.1 because that's, that's a treaty issue we are talking about, compatibility of UTPR with Article 9 of tax treaties, or Article 7 of tax treaties, or Article 10.5, which deals with taxation of undistributed profits, or basically it says you cannot tax undistributed profits of companies. You can actually challenge all your... IIR, UTPR uh, rules under this route and basically you say there's a conflict with treaty provisions, then you go in for MAP and then possibly for arbitration. That can be done. But pure globe top-up tax calculation disputes, that seems to be outside the scope of uh, tax treaties. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's about how you kind of slice the issue you put in front of the, the, the common authority to an extent. Yeah. So, for example, if tomorrow Korea introduces the UTPR and start taxing U.S. multinationals, the first thing you I guess you guys can do is you can start the Article 25 map and say this is a treaty override because treaty override issues can be brought within Article yeah. 25. And then you say, well, uh, if the Koreans they don't accept the map, then possibly then you can go for arbitration. I guess before we wrap it up, thanks a ton for joining. One last question from my perspective which is, where do you think this goes in 12 months? Do we see UTPRs being enforced, or does everybody back down and rely on a combination of QDMTT and IIR? Yes. Um, well, basically, what we will see in the future is the rise of QDMTTs, to be honest. This is what uh, uh, a lot of countries will do. 
And then on the tax competition side, they will have the QRTCs. They will try to see how can we build up things, um, how can we remodel our existing incentives or come up with new incentive ideas and stick it within this umbrella of QRTCs. The QRTC provisions itself, they may just go, uh, they may go undergo, they may undergo a substantial change. That's not what the OECD is currently working on. They are busy with the technical issues right now. But this is something uh, for the future um, where they will try to police uh, tax incentives. So this is pure policing of uh, tax incentives. So QDMTTs and uh, QRTC seems to the future, possibly the IIR. UTPR, I'm really skeptical about uh, countries actually trying to collect top-up taxes through the UTPR. I think the UTPR was honestly just squeezed in to scare countries uh, to adopt IARs and QDMTTs. But if some country tries to enact a UTPR and actually tries to collect taxes through a UTPR, I'm sure that taxpayers will start challenging this before court, saying this is treaty overrides. For me, it's obvious it is a treaty override. So and the chances of you winning or you representing taxpayers and the taxpayers winning Seems quite high for me in uh, when, when it comes to a UTPR challenge. Less probably with a IIR challenge. It's still possible. Less possibly, uh, but under UTPR, it's just obvious for me. Yeah. You heard it here again. UTPR, mutually assured destruction, never designed to work. <laughs> well, Vikram, thank you again so much for joining. This has been a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. And hopefully we can have you back to talk about some of these things as they develop. But thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Well, actually, yes, we should definitely do another one on transfer pricing and pillar two rules because we were supposed to speak about that today, but we had to speak about other things. That's fine. <laughs> we can definitely pick this up later. Most definitely. Yeah, exactly. Stay tuned for part two. Exactly. Thanks all once again. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 